We are in the wonderful book of Romans and in the last uh, full paragraph of that great chapter, Romans 8, verses 31 through 39 today, Lord willing. During the Civil War, someone suggested to President Abraham Lincoln that God was on the side of the North. Lincoln responded, Sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side, but whether we are on His side, for God is always right. Well, if you are on God's side, that is, if you are a believer in Him, if you belong to Him, so if you are on God's side, you can be assured that He is also on your side. God is on your side. God is for us. And that is what Paul is going to tell us here in this passage. In fact, if no one in the world knew you, understood you, God would. If no one else really loved you, God would and does. If no one would back you or support you or encourage you or be there for you, God is. God is for you. This is what Paul tells us here starting at verse 31. What shall we say? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? What shall we say to these things? What things is he referring back to? What shall we say to these things? Well, um, a case could well be made for the fact that he is referring to all the book of Romans up to this point. And he says, based on all that we've seen so far, what can we say? What can we summarize? What, what can we conclude from those? And I, I think it's true that you could do that. Perhaps that is a bit too broad. Um, others suggest that these things what shall we say then to these things are the things immediately preceding especially uh, verses 28 through 30 and the um, as Pastor Jeremy explained last week the the golden chain of um, whoever he predestined he eventually brings to being glorified and considers them glorified already and in light of that wonderful truth that God has already counted believers glorified what then shall we say to these things Uh, So that's the the largest context and the closest context. I prefer a middle view, not because I'm from Middle Earth, but because I think it makes the most sense here. And that is, if you think through the the layout of the book of Romans, uh, the first four chapters are a unit. And then chapters 5 through 8 consist of a unit. And then chapters 9, 10, and 11, another unit. Then 12 through 16, another unit so in this unit of chapters 5 through 8 we have some consistency of what's being talked about that's being and that is uh, brought up again in this passage and especially if you begin at the beginning of the unit which is Romans 5 1 through 5 that beginning let's let's go back there for a moment Romans 5, starting at verse 1, says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, 
we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And just as Romans 8, the last passage there we looked at, ended with the glorification of believers, we stand in hope of the glory of God, Paul tells us here in Romans 5, 2. He goes on to say, not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So we stand in faith, we rejoice in hope, and even tribulation cannot shake us from that. In fact, tribulation eventually works patience and endurance and hope, character qualities within us. And the Holy Spirit has been poured out into our hearts. Now when we come to Romans 8, 31 and following... We have some similar things being said here. And so I see these as being bookends of Romans 5 to 8. Romans 5, 5, 1 through 5, through Romans 8, 31 through 39. Those two are the bookends, and then the rest of it is material between that those two bookends are holding together. So I think that's uh, what these things are referring to. What shall we say then to these things? The things we have looked at in the last, what's well, been two or three weeks, I guess, we've been going through Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. Um, months or, it's been a while, <laughs> but, but Paul says, in light of these things, what shall we say? What, what is left for us to say? And it is this, God is for us. God is for us. Despite our own sin and lack of any merit, God is for us. Now, some questions arise out of that. Since God is for us, the first question is, who can be against us? And Paul immediately goes to that question in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us who can be against us has anyone ever been against you well there will indeed be a lot of people against you who are not in your camp not on your side they are against you and Satan and his crew are not too happy with you either so this statement who can be against us really means who can stand against us? Who, in other words, who could defeat us? Who could effectively be against us if God is for us? When we consider the attributes of God in this, if God is for us, well, just who is this who is for us? And you think about the omniscience of God. He knows all things every possible contingency everything from beginning to end he already knows and there's nothing ever going to come up in your life that will take him by surprise he has already known it he is all powerful there is nothing more powerful than God there, there will never be anything that will come along in your life that is going to take you out of his hand remove you one inch from his heart no one is that powerful. 
when you think about the love of God that he has loved you with an everlasting love the mercy of God that he has already shown you and which he renews every day when you begin thinking about the attributes of God you ask this question if God is for us who could possibly be against us in any kind of effective way so when we consider the attributes of God secondly when we consider the plan of God and this is where I think the immediate previous context really comes in here's the plan of God starting at verse 28 for we know that all things work together for good to those who love God to those who are the called according to his purpose meaning his plan that he's working out in you and here it is for whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren moreover whom he predestined these he also called whom he called these he also justified and whom he justified these he also glorified a done deal in the mind of God and in his plan it is completed it is finished so knowing the plan of God considering that who could possibly thwart the plan of God and thirdly when we consider God's great gifts this is actually in verse 32 when we consider God's great gifts he who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all how shall he not with him also freely give us all things he who did not spare his own son knowing what it would take to redeem us to buy us back out of slavery to sin he did not spare what it took if he would have sent 10,000 angels to somehow give themselves for you it would not have been enough if he would have had a million lambs slaughtered in Jerusalem in your name it would not have been enough the only sacrifice that would avail have any efficacy is his son and he did not spare his own son how great God's gift for us he would not withhold that greatest most precious of all gifts from you so if God is for you how can anyone be against you when you consider how great God loved you and sparing not his own son for you but he delivered him up for us all he delivered him up that reminds us that this was on purpose this is not something that God the Father just let happen certainly it was not something that the Roman soldiers or the Jewish leaders caused to happen it was God's plan God the Father was pleased to crush his son for you he delivered him up on purpose he delivered him up for us all 
Now, just to get an idea of the, the impact of that word for us there, which is the Greek word huper, uh, look back at Romans 5, 8. <clears throat> but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners Christ died for us and the word for there is the same word huper, which means in our place in our stead on our behalf he died for us in our place substitutionary atonement for us well here that same word is used several times, by the way, in this passage. First of all, in verse 31, if God is for us, he is standing in our place on our behalf. And then in verse 32, he delivered him up for us. That same word, on our behalf, he delivered him up for us. Then the question, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things this is arguing from the greater to the lesser if you can start to wrap your mind around this that the greatest gift that ever could be given the son of God was given for you if the greatest thing was given how shall he not also give you other things that are needful for life and godliness if he, if he gave you the greatest, surely he'll give you the little things as well that come along with it. But also notice the, the word with here. How shall he not also with him? It is with Christ. It is as we are in Christ, we belong to him. When we're, as we are with Christ, we get Christ and the other things. We don't get God's blessings apart from Christ. If you want God's blessings, they are found in only one place, and that is in Christ. And how shall he not with him, since he's already given him for us, freely, abundantly, liberally give us all things? Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing he's already blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus the, the blessings are not found here on earth you can't dig up rocks to find the, the treasures of heaven people are too busy looking at earth and in the earth and for earthly things to find heavenly treasures and they're buried in the sky they're in the heavenly places in Christ so you seek Christ and his kingdom first and all those things will be added to you but you seek him first it's in him 2 Peter 1.3 says as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to glory and virtue. His, his divine power has already given us all things, everything you could possibly need for life and godliness. Not everything you need for 
the toys you want and the furniture you want or uh, whatever but everything you need for life and godliness has already been provided in Christ who can, who can indeed be against us considering how lavishly God has loved us the second question is in verse 33 <clears throat> who can accuse us who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who can accuse us? Well, we know that Satan and others try to. If you uh, turn for a moment to the book of Revelation, chapter 12. We are we're given a glimpse of heaven here along with the apostle John who is seeing these things happen in a vision. <clears throat> so we are privileged to see what's going on in heaven here and the accusations by Satan Revelation 12 starting at verse 7 and war broke out in heaven Michael and his angels fought with the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought but they did not prevail nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer so the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony and they did not love their lives to the death he is the accuser of the brethren who accuses before God's throne day and night he never stops hurling accusations against us to God And of course, others will accuse us as well. And our own conscience accuses us, rightfully at times, because the Holy Spirit um, wants us to understand the error of our way. But who, who can accuse us to the point that there is a, an accusation that will stick and will bring us down? Look how this is stated who shall bring a charge against God's elect against God's elect now Paul is careful here not to just say against believers but to emphasize the fact that God's that believers in God are God's elect those who are chosen by him and verse 30 remember says moreover whom he predestined these he also called, whom he called, these he justified, whom he justified, these he also glorified. And since in God's mind it's a finished deal, who can bring a charge against the elect? It's not like something new is going to come up that God didn't think of. And Paul gives the ultimate answer here. It is God who justifies. 
the only one who could accuse us, the only perfect one, is the only one who could accuse us. In fact, in uh, John 5, 22 and 27, we are told that all judgment has been given to the Son because He is the Son of God. And so the only one who could accuse us is the one who justifies us. So no one will accuse us or make it stick. But let's take that further. Who can condemn us? Verse 34. <clears throat> who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. So who can condemn us? And Paul gives us <clears throat> four reasons why no one can condemn us. Because first of all, Christ died. And he died, as we have seen, a sacrificial death. Uh, he died for us in our place. He paid for all of our sin. This was not just a, a death. This was a sacrificial, atoning death. There is therefore now no condemnation. Look at verse 1 of this chapter. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Because he died for us. <clears throat> W.H. Griffith Thomas wrote about this a little poem see him ascending up Calvary's hill Jesus our kinsman redeemer payment is made to the very last might signed is the contract and finished the fight settled is writ over the bill in God's sight finished O glorious redeemer Christ died and furthermore way of saying and even more than that Christ rose and by doing that he sealed the victory over death he bestows eternal life by his resurrection in fact as he said in John 11 because I live you also will live and Christ is exalted <clears throat> He is even at the right hand of God. And in that exalted position, we are told that he is given all power in heaven and earth. Matthew 28, 18. All power in heaven and earth. And so there is no power which could pluck us out of his hand. Not only that, but he intercedes for us. We saw in verse 26 that the Holy Spirit himself intercedes for us. But here we're also told that Jesus Christ intercedes for us. Now that's important since what we saw in uh, Revelation um, 12, 10 was that Satan accuses us continually day and night before the throne. But look at Hebrews 7, 25. Seven twenty-five. 
Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost. Saved completely and forever to the uttermost. Those who come to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. He is continually making intercession for us. And the Father, of course, always hears him. Uh, Hebrews 9.24. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us on our behalf so who can condemn us Christ died and he rose and he is exalted and he intercedes for us there's no one who could condemn us now back to Romans 8 <coughs> one final question here that Paul raises Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? See that in verse 35? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Let's stop there for a moment. <clears throat> Since we have all these assurances previously given to us here in Romans 8. Based upon the Savior's love for us. Because God loved us so much we have these things. The only danger left then is if that love would somehow cease. If something could somehow separate us from the love of God. That's the only potential danger that might be. And so now Paul addresses that. And he, he does so by first talking about trials. That trials and tribulation cannot separate us from the love of God. Now, when we are going along smoothly, everything's going wonderfully well, which means as we want them to, then we have no question about God's faithfulness or his love to us, right? It's when things don't go so well. When believers face trials, tribula tribulations, persecution, <clears throat> that they can start to wonder, does God care about me does God even know I exist does he, does he understand my problem I, with all the other things going on in the world does he even know does he, does he still love me does he remember me <clears throat> and believers can go down that line of thought and Paul assures us that no kind of trial could ever separate us from the love of Christ. First of all, consider this. If suffering of some sort, persecution, being mistreated, that sort of thing, was a sign that God had abandoned you, 
he, that he did not love you, then what shall we say of Christ? Did God the Father love the Son? And yet did he allow him to be nailed to the cross? What shall we say about the Son then? God loved him utterly. And yet the Son suffered tremendously. And so suffering, going through trials and hard times, in no way means that God has stopped loving us. He loves us still. Plus, um, look here in this passage of Romans 8, verse 16 through 18. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. If we suffer with Him, now, If suffering was a mark of God not loving you and forgetting about you, then certainly this verse would be wrong itself. But we suffer with him that we might be glorified together with him. Verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Uh, Nothing can separate us. Not even the worst of trials that you go through marks that God's love is not with you. He is with you. Um, Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. That, he said, to his followers. Expect it, you are going to have tribulation. That doesn't mean I don't love you. In fact, he said, you're going to have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I am with you. My peace I give to you. You will have tribulation. And here is again where Romans 5 comes in. If you turn back there again. Talking about the connection of the love of God, the steadfast love of God, and going through trials or suffering or tribulation. Romans 5, 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. Why? Because tribulation doesn't mean we have been separated from God and He doesn't love us anymore. We also glory in tribulation, be knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and per, per, perseverance, character and character, hope. And now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. And that love of God poured out in your heart by God remains there no matter what you go through and especially in hard times we turn to him so why does God allow us to go through hard times perhaps it is to to cling to him more closely to know him better 
at a Christian summer camp for children, one of the counselors was leading a discussion on the purpose God had for everything he had created. They began to find good reasons for clouds and trees and rocks and rivers and animals and just about everything else in nature. Finally, one of the children said, if God had a good purpose for everything, then why did God create poison ivy? <clears throat> the discussion leader gulped and as he struggled with the question one of the other children came to his rescue saying the reason God made poison ivy is because God wanted us to know there are certain things we should keep our cotton picking hands off <laughs> that's the best explanation I've heard oh if we go through hard times it does not mean that God's love has forsaken us but we cling to him all the closer look at verse 36 as it is written for your sake we are killed all day long we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter now why would Paul go back to the Psalms pick out this <clears throat> this passage why include that here? I think uh, John Calvin had a good answer to that. He said, this was to show that it is no new thing for the Lord to permit his saints to be undeservedly exposed to the cruelty of the ungodly. That is, we shouldn't be surprised if those who do not belong to God mistreat us. It's been the pattern all through time. Think about what they did to the prophets and how they stoned and killed them and jailed them and so forth. Think what they did to Christ. It's no new thing for the ungodly to mistreat those who belong to God. So don't think that because of that, that trial somehow separates you from God. It may even be a sign of his stamp of approval on you. Verse 37. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Notice that it is in all these things. We want to be delivered out of all these things. All these kinds of tribulations and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and peril and sword. We want to be delivered out from those and as soon as possible, thank you. But what Paul says here is that we are more than conquerors in all those things. In the midst of them, while we are going through them, in those things we are still more than conquerors. Uh, Charles Spurgeon was walking uh, out in the country one day with a friend and he saw in a weather vane the words, God is love. And Spurgeon said, I don't think it is uh, an appropriate thing to have those words on so changeable a thing as a weather vane. And his friend uh, said, But sir, you are mistaken. 
because what it means is God is love no matter which way the wind blows it's true no matter what is going on God is love and his love never fails so we are more than conquerors in all those things and sometimes when you're in the midst of the trial you don't feel like a winner do you you don't feel like you're more than a conqueror in that thing but you are because God knows he's going to bring you out of it and he knows the end and you win now suppose a a team uh, two teams were playing and there was one that was down by a lot of points and it looked hopeless and they look at their situation and think there's no way and we're getting killed here but what if they knew what if they somehow knew that the outcome of the game at the end the score would be they win well they wouldn't be so downcast then they would still have to play and try their hardest and get that victory but they know they would win and that's how it is for us when we go through these hard times Paul is telling us when we're in them we are more than conquerors because whom he justified these he also glorified God has declared the end from the beginning he knows you win he knows you make it home to glory even in the midst of that trial that is all that you can see is the darkness he sees the light of eternity that he is bestowing upon you he says you win and we are more than conquerors and this victory comes not because we are winners but through him who loved us is based on what he did and who he is through him who loved us because he loved us he gave himself for us well dealing with the issue of trials tribulation Paul says that they cannot separate us from the love of God but also he sums up this passage by then saying nothing can separate us from the love of Christ in verse 38 and 39 For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 38, I am persuaded. I am absolutely convinced. I am rock solid sure of these things he goes through uh, a series of things which are uh, in general at least pairings death and life uh, angels and principalities and powers and angels uh, of course uh, you know what angels are but principalities and powers is uh, those are terms used elsewhere for demons Ephesians 6 and uh, Colossians 1 uh, other places those are titles of levels of demons principalities powers dominions and rulers um, so neither death nor life or them or things 
that are present or things that might come in the future nor height nor depth nothing uh, nothing physical nothing metaphysical nothing spatial nothing spiritual nothing at all can separate us from God and as if that wasn't enough Paul adds nor any other created thing nothing else not any other the word translated other or maybe your version else is uh, the Greek word heteros from which we get like heterosexual other sexed heterosexual this, this word heteros means other other of a different kind now there's an interesting um, view on this that was uh, started by the uh, ancient uh, uh, commentator Godet and, uh, and has been championed by others through the years who have thinking about that word why would God use that word here because you see the verse would have worked if it just said nor high any created thing that we would have still got the point right nor any created thing so why say other created thing uh, Godet and others postulated that because it's the word heteros meaning other of a different kind the idea is that even if there was some other kind of uh, other cre hello <laughs> even if there was some other created universe unknown to us something other than what we know of creation as we look at plant life and animal life and suns and stars and our universe and as far as we can see if there was something another other totally different universe than what we can perceive even if there was that could not change the fact and uh, that might have some merit to it there are certainly those who hold to that view it's interesting but I think the least we could say and it's, it's still quite a statement is that, that perhaps Paul meant to use this as a catch all phrase because he gives a list of things and in case someone were to come up later and say, yeah, but you didn't talk about animals in that list. And so it is nor any other created thing other than what I have already listed here. It's a catch-all phrase. That either way, it means that there is absolutely nothing in all creation that could, that could ever touch you and change this. Or any other created thing now that includes everything but God because God is the only uncreated nothing shall ever be able to separate us shall be able as, means to have the, the power to God holds you in, in his hand John 10 Jesus talks about the father holding us in his hand and no one can ever pluck us out of the father's hand You have uh, in, your, in your bulletin a, a bit of verse here by Annie Johnson Flint. And with, with apologies to Annie, I've updated the wording a little bit more to make it not TH ending verbs. But look at this, uh, this encouragement of this 
um, him. He gives more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sends more strength when the labors increase. To added affliction, he adds his mercy. To multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he gives and gives and gives again. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Where is that love? It's in Christ Jesus. Why will you never be separated from it? It's not because of you. It's not not the love of God in you. It's the love of God in Christ. And Christ will never disappoint. You will disappoint God in, 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 the, in the sense that you are going to sin. Uh, I misspoke that. I don't think God is ever disappointed because he knows all things. He can't be. Theologically, technically. But we, we will sin. But his love is secured for us in Christ Jesus the Lord if you are in Christ that love will never cease may these words be a a great means of blessing and assurance to you let's pray Heavenly Father we thank you so much for your grace in our lives for these words of, of great assurance to us that you have loved us with this kind of a love that you spared not your own son but you freely delivered him up for us all and God we know that nothing can ever separate us from you and from that love I pray for each one here that they would be greatly encouraged by these words of truth as we go forward this day if there are any here who don't have a relationship with you that you would open their heart to to long for this kind of assurance and love and relationship that they would know that all who put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ in his saving work on the cross become your forever children. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.